welcome to Travelog, the Connie Nast Traveler podcast. It is Friday, August 25th, and I am obviously not Brad again. You're stuck with me for another week. My name is Meredith Carey, and I am an editor here at Connie Nast Traveler, and I am joined in the studio by Lale Ericoglu and Sebastian Modak, who are also Connie Nast Traveler editors for the digital team. And then from Boston and Nantucket, I have Tyler Moss and Cassie Shortsleeve calling in on Skype. This week, we are talking about water, just all things H2O. We have a big package online that rolled out that Lolly and Sebastian were working on for the past month or so. Do you guys want to talk about quickly like what you were thinking about when you decided to talk about something that covers 70% of the Earth? Sure. Pretty broad subject. <laughs> but I think when we approached it, you know, you could go any thousand different ways but what it really came down to was what water means to everyone in their everyday lives what is it that makes people happy and we need it to stay alive but beyond that how does it affect us like especially you know depending on like where we live and geography and where we travel and what we choose to see of the world and so really our starting point was a feature written by Cassie which really took a deep dive Excuse the pun. There's going to be a lot of those, <laughs> I think. So many. So many deep dives <laughs> um, into what it exactly is about water that makes us happy and can it make us happier. And so beyond that, we have stories about the healing powers of the Ganges and, you know, swimming and lakes in Berlin. Apparently, it's actually sort of a religion there if you're a Berliner and what island nations have in common with each other beyond proximity to the ocean. There's a brilliant, very fun, vintage story about the history behind the first overwater bungalows and lots, lots more. Lots of beautiful galleries of amazing images and, you know, all these places that you just want to go to. And part of it, too, is that, I mean, it's summer, right? That's a time when people at least summer in the Northern Hemisphere, where people tend to gravitate towards water as these destinations. We were trying to answer the question why and uh, what they do when they're there. So we have you know, <laughs> stories on surfing, on scuba diving, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Even I think even more so than you know mountains as a destination or deserts. Like There's just something about the landscape of where the land hits water that attracts us, especially when we're in vacation mode. So maybe that's a good starting point for Cassie to talk about her wonderful piece. Right, that you looked into, looked the into yeah the science behind why water makes you happy. Is there anything you learned that like really blew your mind? One of the interesting things here is we're obviously talking about a a very broad topic, like you guys have said, but water just connects with so many people, and I think when you ask the question of why, everybody gives a different answer, and it's very hard to pinpoint the exact feeling as to why we feel happier and healthier when we're surrounded by water. And in my piece, I interviewed a marine biologist named Jay Nichols, and he wrote the book Blue Mind, which is all about the physical and psychological benefits of being around water. And something he said to me was, you know, when you ask people to describe the feeling they get when they're around water, it's hard for them to describe other than to say that they really like it, they need it, and they're willing to pay a lot of money for it. And one of the interesting things that he said to me in our interview was that he gives speeches all all around the world on the topic of water. And he said to me, what's your water? 
And immediately I had an answer. And he says, everyone has an answer that just is the first body of water that comes to mind, which what is something What was your answer? Mine is the beach club I grew up going to that I mentioned in the article on Cape Cod. Tyler, what's your water? Well, I think mine would probably have to be the Oregon coast. I'm originally from Portland. And uh, a lot of vacations in my childhood were spent going to the coast. And it wasn't necessarily glamorous or anything like that. In fact, most of the time, the water at the Oregon coast is frigid. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it has its own kind of pristine beauty to it, I think. I, I mean, personally, I prefer those cold water coasts more than warm sand beaches anymore, just because that's what I grew up with. But I can totally relate to that finding your water idea. I have lived in Cincinnati for the past six years, just recently moved. And, you know, living in a landlocked city, I feel like there's something entirely different. I mean, just mentally being someplace that's closer to a large body of water versus being somewhere. And there's a lot to love about Cincinnati, but that's something I sincerely missed. Before that, I lived in Chicago and like Michigan is so vast, it feels like an ocean. You know, it just, it makes your world seem so much bigger. No, I mean, I totally agree. I grew up part of my life in Florida and like lived on an island for a while and then moved to Dallas, which when we have water comes in very small lakes. And when we don't, we are like four to five hours from the closest coast. And it was such a huge mental adjustment to be so used to accessing the ocean or even just any body of water that to move somewhere where like I couldn't swim, I couldn't ski, I couldn't, you know, just lay out on the sand and just hear the waves was this totally mind-boggling thing for me as a teenager trying to figure out what to do with my life. What do you think, Seb? What's your water? Evian. (laughs) Are we allowed Uh, to do product placement? (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by... Face mist. Smart water. Um, I think I have a few different ones. I mean, I didn't grow up in one place, so I didn't have like one place I was going back to a lot that involved water. But... I've had various experiences that were very pivotal that I think I attached to certain bodies of water that I've returned to. And one of them that immediately came to mind is this river in Ecuador near Mindo, where a lot of my cousins live, that I'd go to in the summers with my cousins. I think part of what makes it so special is that I can't tell you where it is because I don't know where it is because I would I relied on my cousins to show me the way to it every summer and you know didn't pay attention to where I was going and I just would show up and that would be my special place for the afternoon you know um, but I agree that there is something about a body of water that does kind of evoke heavy nostalgia are you gonna hate me if I ask you if your body of water is the Thames Valley? I won't hate you, but it's wrong. <laughs> okay. Phosphorus? Give it to me. What I was actually going to say it? the phosphorus. Mm. It was the first one that... Nailed it. First body of water that came into mind. And I grew up in London. I live in New York. I only really lived in cities that have some famous river that runs through them. But I've also always been close to the coast. It's always been, you know, never felt far away. But yeah, when Cassie asked that question, I thought the Bosphorus is like a sort of mind-bottling body of water in Istanbul. I mean, you stand on one side in Europe and you look over at Asia on the other side. Like, what could be more crazy than that? And, you know, as a kid, I spent a lot of summers there and some of my dad's family had a house on the water. So even though you can't swim in it, it's incredibly polluted. The (laughs) sound of the phosphorus and not just the water but all the activity going on it is just like so cemented in my memory and I actually remember there was like a sort of mild earthquake one year and the sound of the 
water lapping up on the terrace at the house I was staying at is like such a vivid memory that I don't think I'll ever shake. And it's also just, it, it's beautiful. And I think that, you know, what Cassie's story really gets at is even if you're not in the water, it's as much looking at it and that proximity to it that can really have such a positive effect on you. Well, my water is an enormous body of water. I was going to say the Atlantic, and Cassie, you actually talked to a friend of mine for that story. When I was in college, I went on Semester at Sea, which is this kind of weird study abroad program on a tiny cruise ship where you go around the world. And one of my friends on the ship, um, Andrew, is from Oklahoma, and he had never seen the ocean until he stepped foot on a ship that was going to take him around it for four months straight. And so I think that you talked a lot about what it means, but did you learn anything from talking to him or any of the other people that you interviewed about what it's like when you don't have it? Well, one of the things I learned researching the piece and, and, and talking to Andrew, just who grew up in a landlocked state and never saw water, was, you know, when you say to them, you know, what was it like growing up without the ocean, without water, as many of us know it, there's so many definitions of water. And he'd say, well, I grew up going to lakes or, you know, I'd spend my time on the rivers and the marine biologist Jay, um, you know, he talks a lot about cities and what they do with fountains and how that attracts people. And I mean, even when I lived in New York, I always found myself kind of gravitating toward anywhere that had water. So there's something to be said about the vastness of the ocean. And I think when I interviewed Andrew, he said when he finally saw the ocean, he was just completely speechless and Meredith if you were there you can probably attest to it but he said I he was stood too, there so. <laughs> for hours or something yeah so I, there's something to be said for that but it's so interesting to hear about how even tiny little examples of water can move us Jay mentioned to me that he's even heard people say that a, a tiny drop of water or just a little bit of dew on a flower can be someone's water well, I mean, here's kind of an example of that in the extreme sense. Um, I lived in Botswana for a while, which you all know because I don't shut up about it. Um, <laughs> and in Botswana, the name of the currency is pula, which means rain in Setswana. And Botswana is one of the driest places in the world. And so rain is literally the monetary value. It became the name of the currency. And I felt it when I was there. It's, you know, it's just so starkly dry that the first time I kind of traveled out of the country and went to the coast in Namibia and seeing the ocean it was it was like an overwhelming feeling of euphoria because water I mean it's, it is such a vital part of our existence biologically that I think there is something that just kicks in when you see it that just you know makes you excited and I'm um, in the piece the marine biologist you spoke to Cassie from what I recall he's from California and he mentioned what it was like living in the drought yeah, correct. So he um, kind of lived through the whole California drought and he kind of talked about just what happens when people have their source of water taken away, whether it's a little creek running in the backyard that, you know, helped somebody sleep or even feeling guilty about taking a long shower. If your shower was your one moment in the day where you could get a little blue mind, as he calls it. And to that extent, it kind of goes back to that whole emotional toll that a lack of water can take on you. Um, so he talked a little bit about that and kind of spilled that into um, just the ecological and economic costs of things like pollution, but then also the emotional ones. So we see oil spills and we think, and you see all the wildlife that is 
harmed by that, but there's also an emotional toll there of people who maybe can't go to the beach and can't go for their stroll along the water that made them happy. So that was kind of interesting to hear him talk about. I feel like you, Sebastian, are our biggest champion in the office against climate change. Um, and I don't like it. <laughs> to be clear, we all care about climate change. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. I think it just comes up most out of Seb's mouth when we're sitting at lunch together. Um, but you just watched the documentary on Netflix that everyone has been talking about. Yeah, you'll see in my piece about Great Barrier Reef, which is live when this podcast goes live because I'm going to write it in the next three days. Um, I talked to some of the people involved in that documentary. It's called Chasing Coral. And this documentary, basically, they're trying to chart the effects of coral bleaching around the world, which is basically something that happens when sea temperatures rise and the algae that live in coral and give coral its life, basically the coral's food, leave corals and leave them kind of this bone-dry, half-dead state which will mean that they will die within a course of like five to 10 years. And it's pretty bad right now. The Great Barrier Reef, which is essentially the largest living organism on Earth, if you count it as one giant organism, two thirds of it is basically undergoing coral bleaching right now. That's after two successive years of record temperatures in the waters in 2016 and 2017. And I think that's kind of goes back to what we were talking about with water is that part of its appeal, I think, part of its draw is its mystery. We know more about our own solar system than we do what's under the ocean. But that also means that a lot of what's happening to our planet happens out of sight, out of mind. In terms of like carbon sinks, things that absorb carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the ocean absorbs some 93% of it. So it's doing its damnedest to (laughs) stop us from destroying this fucking place. But we've caught up to it. You know, it's caught up with itself. And um, so... Not only are we not seeing the life and the beauty and everything that exists, but we're also not seeing the destruction work wreaking on the planet because so much of it is being manifested in our coral reefs, in our ice caps. I asked you know, pretty much everyone I talked to for the Great Barrier Reef story, which included coral scientists as well as these underwater filmmakers who made the Chasing Coral documentary. Everyone I asked, I asked, like, okay, so how do you strike this balance? It's something that's on its way out. It's dying. Tourism travel has a huge carbon footprint too so do you encourage people to go or do you say you know maybe it's time to leave it alone and try to it's our only hope maybe that's its only hope for recovery and without fail every single one of them said absolutely not you need to go because by seeing them then that's when you know what the problem is so they 100 percent encourage people to scuba dive to snorkel to see these places Also because a lot of them were not necessarily optimistic that they're going to be around for much longer. So um, how does one get PADI certified? Right, because it takes more than just like signing up for a scuba class. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, look, first I want to start by saying, uh, like Sebastian, you know, I'm very, um, I would say I'm anti-climate change. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I wrote a piece for you guys last year, I think, that was, you know, 10, 10 destinations that are getting lost to climate change. And, you know, I didn't necessarily write that piece in the idea that, you know, you would read it and think, okay, I'm going to go to all these 10 places before they're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like Sebastian was talking about, I think it's very important what that an article like that does is raise awareness and kind of, you know, really get this in, in front of people's minds thinking about these are some of the world's most, you know, exciting, historic, precious destinations that we really cherish. And you don't really 
on a daily basis think about you know the impact or toll that climate change is taking on them of course of all those places um you know what you can't see like sebastian said what's really going on underwater 70 percent, what we say 70 percent of the world is is underwater and so these reefs especially are um in such danger and uh of that list that i had last year the great barrier reef was on it but mm-hmm. recently i did the pieces for you guys on you know the best scuba diving destinations having interviewed all these kind of scuba experts as well as kind of you know talking about the process of how you go about getting certified to go scuba diving and why you should and um first of all regarding you know talking about destinations without fail all these places the experts recommended from the great barrier reef to you know ras muhammad state park um off the coast of egypt to a reef off the coast of florida even i mean these are all in danger um you have, you know, like Sebastian said, ocean acidification and, and warming happening all over the place. And these are such fragile ecosystems. It's not just about going down there and seeing this beautiful coral. It's about losing all these, you know, diverse species, the, all the fish and everything that live down there. It's a food chain. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the actual process to go scuba diving, I mean, and you should, because there's still plenty of amazing things to see down there. And you need to go witness to really understand what's, what's happening in terms of climate change. Um, but I think that a lot of people have the feeling that the process to get certified is a lot more intimidating than it really is. It's a lot more time consuming or expensive. I mean, the article, I detail things like specific costs, but in terms of process, I mean, you can really knock it out. If you go on a vacation and it's a, you make it into like a scuba diving vacation, um, you can go for a week and essentially do, you know, I think it's, you kind of roll in your study and your, your diving days. I mean, get this experience over the course of a week, or if even back home, if you're somewhere that's more landlocked or even along, you know, um, not on vacation where you can't just spend multiple days in a row diving, you can um, take a course over the course of, you know, six Sundays or something like that and, and get your dives. And even, you know, even if you're in the middle of the country, get your dives into a deep body of water like uh, a natural spring or a deep lake or something like that. And you can uh, knock out the process and get down there. And without fail, you know, all these people, I talk to all these um, scuba diving instructors and experts and just people who are avid scuba divers. Um, I mean, it's like a religion for them. I got descriptions like it feels like you're in space. You know, it feels uh, completely supernatural. Um, and there's so many different types of diving you can do too, from kind of these clear water um, cenotes down in off the coast of Mexico to, you know, um, I know that some of the more um, ed- like really advanced divers, you can go, you know, dive sea uh, wrecks and actually go through like old ships and different things and see the sea life that lives there. So it's a pretty diverse hobby yeah. and you can get a lot of, a lot of bang for your buck, I guess out of it, but more experience, you know, experience wise, you can get a lot of bang for your buck too. I'd totally attest to what Tyler is saying about folding it into your vacation. Um, that's what I did when I got my open water license. So I, I did it in Bonaire and like when I was doing my tests, I was taking my test in a bungalow on the beach, like drinking a fresh fruit juice. And then when we, you know, did our first open water dive, we literally just like walked out onto the beach, walked into the water and then just swam out and we were diving. What I did want to know, though, is I think for a lot of people, the prospect of scuba diving, even if it is accessible to learn how to do it, seems really scary. And, you know, I, for one, kind of consider it extreme in Mm -hmm. terms of activities and sports but 
Tyler, the impression I got is all these scuba diving trainers and organizations are saying, no, it's like not as daunting as many travelers think it is. Exactly. I was kind of under that impression, too, that it was pretty daunting. It's something that I've always wanted to do. Um, but uh, have, you know, it was exciting to go and learn more about it. And I think, you know, it was funny. Um, they really walk you through baby steps. You start in the classroom for the, and then you kind of, you know, you go for your shallow dives, whether that's in a pool or, you know, really basically like a confined body of water, something that's self-contained and you don't feel like you're in a position where, you know, the current's going to come in and drag you out somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and you're just underwater a little bit. And then you keep moving out to going and doing, you know, the open water dives in a lot deeper water. So it's, uh, it's not like you're just thrown in the ocean and you have to figure that out. But also uh, one of the um, guys I talked to who was an avid, uh, a real avid scuba diver was telling me that his wife, you know, hates swimming. She, he said that, you know, she's not a particularly strong swimmer. So she was very anxious getting started about, you know, being able to scuba dive and found that it, you know, um, she didn't have nearly the anxiety doing it. She thought she would because it's a very different experience once you're actually underwater with the gear on. Um, and you're not, you know, uh, it, she absolutely loves it, apparently. So I think that it is not nearly as daunting or intimidating as, you know, it's kind of been made up to be in a lot of people's minds. I have a question for you guys. I know that last year there was this first round of articles that was like, the Great Barrier Reef is dead. Mm. And then there was another round that's like, scientists are telling you, like, no, still go because it's still there. Like, don't call it dead yet. Yeah. What is the balance of that yeah, situation? Yeah, so a certain publication, which I'm not going to name, published an obituary to the Great Barrier Reef after these initial studies came out from Australia. Basically, there's, you know, a bunch of universities and environmentalists in Australia did kind of an aerial survey of the reef to basically try to ascertain what two back-to-back -back bleaching events, which is kind of unprecedented, did to the health of the reef. And they came out with this obituary and the backlash from the community was very strong because they're saying like, no, it's not dead yet. It's a very fatalistic way of looking at it. Yeah, the bleaching is kind of out of control. I think the latest numbers uh, from the latest aerial surveys showed that like two thirds of the reef is suffering from some degree of coral bleaching. Uh, but coral bleaching doesn't mean the animal's dead. Coral bleaching means that it's kind of in purgatory in a way. and they can heal and they reefs have healed in the past. It can take up to 10 years, but reefs can heal. Um, and so I think part of the outcry around that was saying that, no, this has to be like a wake up call that we need to do something now to stop this. Even if coral reefs as ecosystems are on their way out and that's un it's unsustainable, like and that, you know, we're just not gonna be able to stop it from happening. It needs to be a warning signal for other ecosystems that are just as fragile and could be next on the cutting board. And when coral reefs actually die, this very crazy thing happens. This blew my mind when you told me the first yeah. time. So there's this, without giving away too many spoilers, there's one scene in the documentary Chasing Coral, which again, I'm gonna plug and again say you should watch, where they're diving close to New Caledonia in the Pacific, which the Great Barrier Reef is, you know, passes through there. And I guess just because of logistics, the only way they were able to kind of set up their dive was they're diving off of essentially a party boat, like a party boat. So it's like all these people just like partying on this boat, music blasting, they're all just like drinking beers, and the team is 
going on successive dive after dive to document this reef right under where this boat is. None of the revelers know what's going on under them, what's right under them. And this entire reef, this part of the Great Barrier Reef, is just glowing, like neon colors, like highlighter colors. It's called coral fluorescence, and there's a whole range of coral species that do that right before they die. And it's the most sadly like poetic thing. Uh, someone in the movie says it's like they're trying to say, hey, notice me. Because this is your last shot. It's just like dev- This is just like a knife That's to the uh, heart. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one of the most, you know, one of the people I talked to who's kind of this coral nerd who features very heavily in the film. Is I like, feel like I wish my job description was just like coral <laughs> nerd. <yeah>. But <laughs> you, you'd be out of a job pretty soon if we keep doing <laughs> what we're doing. So he said, he said, it's like the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Like you're lucky as a diver if you come across a reef that's going, undergoing fluorescence. But it's also like the most tragic because at the same time, it's like literally its last dying call for help. That's... Well, and Tyler, I don't know if you came across this in your reporting, but this is just making me think of another piece I did for you guys about the reef safe sunblocks. Mm. And that seemed to be pretty prominent in the diving and surfing communities where these athletes and people who spend so much time in the water are starting to really make a stand against some of these harmful chemicals in sunblock like oxybenzone. Mm that are just killing coral reefs. And we interviewed a couple of surfers, one who started a reef safe sunblock called Manda, uh, I believe. And I wasn't even necessarily super aware that these sunblocks that are just sold all over the world can be so harmful. So I think it's important to bring awareness to that. And you know, if you are diving and you are going to see these reefs to be aware of our impact on them from that sense. Well, I know that there is a hotel chain in Hawaii. It's actually the largest hotel chain in Hawaii called Aqua Aston Hospitality. Um, But they just announced that they are going to be providing like every guest that stays at their hotels with eco-friendly mineral-based sunscreen from this company called Raw Elements um, in an effort to just say like, we live here, we love the water and the creatures that live in it. And we're going to protect them by making sure that, one, you don't get sunburned, and two, you don't ruin that by wearing sunscreen. So it's like a win-win for everyone. Yeah. You know, I one thing I want to say, and I think that the, that kind of stuff is important, not just for counteracting what the sun, you know, what the chemicals in sunscreen do to a reef, but just for making people think about it again. Totally. Um, but, you know, I feel like these are becoming more pervasive when you talk about climate change, but you get these kind of clickbaity type headlines that are very doomsday. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that they can provoke this feeling that there's nothing that can be done. And I, I'm sh- I mean, it seems like this is what you came across in your research, Sebastian, too. But I don't think anybody's saying that it's a lost cause by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination. They're just trying to you know, get awareness raised. And there's still, you know, absolutely beautiful coral reefs out there you can still go see. Even the Great Barrier Reef, I mean, like you were saying, has so much to see. It's It's I mean, it's not beyond our ability to do something, and you should still go see these things and bear witness, then go tell the people how how beautiful certain parts were and how devastating other parts were and what, you know, do what you can about it. Absolutely. And I, this week I published a story where I talked to Paul Nicklin, who's kind of like my favorite Instagram account and just a total badass. Um, he's a photographer, a contributing photographer for National Geographic, and he runs a conservation organization, but... Long story short, he kind of photographs mostly these really extreme Arctic regions. 
And his main thing has been like, yeah, I can keep, you know, publishing my photos in National Geographic. I can be a biologist, which he was before he became a photographer. But he has 3.5 million followers on Instagram. And he, you know, will post a photo of an emaciated polar bear who's acting completely out of its regular behavior by climbing a cliff to hunt birds. And that's going to elicit a response from people and an awareness from people that, like, things are fragile. They're not gone, but they're fragile because right next to that is a beautiful photo of a sunset with humpback whales breaching the ocean. And humpback whales were on the endangered list, endangered species list, until very recently, until they were taken off because, you know, we've done stuff to clamp down on commercial whaling and things like that. So, you know, and that photo is to show that, look, you know, we can bounce back from these things. So I think part of it is exactly what you're saying, Tyler. It's like developing this awareness and this appreciation for the beauty of our water to let that inform the way we act around and the way we interact with it. And I don't think it just is limited to the environment in like an animal fish sort of way. I think when you think of a city like Venice, Mm -hmm. which is obviously feeling the effects of climate change and of, you know, over tourism because so many cruise ships are coming through there, waters are rising. I think that a city that is so based on its connection with water is definitely feeling that strain. But I think they're doing things and making a small effort. I'm sure people who live in Venice probably have a, I guess, stronger feeling about this than I will sitting in this chair. But I mean, I think that they're trying, the government there is trying to limit tourists to certain areas, cut down on the amount of people who can visit, just to like retain the city, at least as it is now, in the same way that laws that we've put on to protect animals are doing the same thing so that it can one day bounce back and, you know, as long as it doesn't end up completely underwater, um, be somewhere that people can return to in the future. And talking about cities, I know that someone else, Will Fulton, wrote a story for us, for you guys, Lolly and Sebastian, um, about why coastal... For all of us. Right, right, it's for everyone's (laughs) consumption, about why coastal towns are so colorful, which is, I feel like, a kind of fun way to wrap up. And it's like a pretty simple reasoning, I think, which is just that at one point, all of these places... You know, all those beautiful towns in Italy that you see on Instagram, Valparaiso in Chile, which is one of my favorite places. Even like Key West were all fishing towns at one point and they needed to attract their people back. So they painted themselves in beautiful colors and then Instagram and photos came around and now they keep painting them because people come to see them. (laughs) Thankfully, 150 years ago, the hashtag didn't exist. Didn't exist, (laughs) exactly. Okay, well, thank you everyone for listening. If you have any questions about anything that has to do with water. We have so many experts and quasi-experts in this office and uh, on this podcast who would love to chat. So everyone, where can the internet find you if they have a question or complaint or just like general musing? You can find me on the water. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is the worst. (laughs) I'm uh, at Seb Modak, S-E-B-M-O-D-A-K on all the social-y things. How about you, Cassie? Uh, I am at C Shortsleeve on social media. And Tyler? I am at TJ Moss 11. And Lale? I'm on Twitter at Lale Arikoglu. And I am at Oh Hey There Mayor. And if you want to find all of these stories, you can go to cntraveler.com or check us out at cntraveler on Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. We're at Kanye Nast Traveler on Facebook and SoundCloud. If you have any complaints, questions, 
all that jazz, feel free to tweet at us. Uh, we have used many of your suggestions to create podcasts in the past, and we are looking to plan September and October. So if you have feels, let me know. And let us know what your water is as well. We'd exactly. love to hear from you. Exactly. And have a great weekend. Bye.